Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and insights on topics across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spodekindle, the VP of Product Development with ACFCS. And on this edition, it is all about the Financial Action Task Force, and specifically, their recent guidance on the regulation of virtual assets, a category that includes, most notably, cryptocurrencies. Practically since the start of the crypto era about 10 years ago, critics and some advocates have been calling for a regulatory framework to address their financial crime risks. Well, as of late June, that framework has finally arrived, and one message is clear. Crypto is no longer the unregulated Wild West of the financial sector. But what about the wider impacts on both crypto firms and the traditional financial sector? Well, fortunately, to explore that, we're privileged to have David Carlyle, the head of Community for Leading Blockchain Forensics and compliance firm Elliptic, to guide us on that subject and much more. David, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Brian. So let's start off with a question that I think a lot of our listeners might have had in their minds when this came out, which is simply why. Uh, why did the FATF issue this June 2019 guidance on virtual assets, and why has the FATF been so focused on crypto? Yeah, well, um, I think it actually helps to kind of uh, revisit some of the, the cloud of history uh, on the topic of virtual assets, as they're now known, uh, which, like you mentioned, is sort of a catch-all term that includes cryptocurrencies. This is this June 2019 guidance is actually the second time the FATF took up the subject of virtual assets or cryptocurrencies in any real detail. Uh, they had actually issued guidance back in 2015 uh, that took an initial look at what were then called virtual currencies, uh, which, again, included cryptocurrencies, and, and made an initial attempt back then in 2015 to start to try to understand the risks and some sort of response that um, regulators could undertake to address those risks. Um, and back in 2015, uh, when, when the FATA first looked at this question uh, about what to do with virtual currencies, um, I, I think things like crypto are really only sort of just coming on to regulators' radar for the first time. Um, the United States had implemented fairly significantly, significant and detailed regulatory guidance in 2013. Uh, but outside of the U.S., very few countries had even begun to regulate cryptocurrencies. There had been some... Cases, prominent cases like the Silk Road dark web marketplaces of illicit actors using cryptocurrencies. Uh, but, but for the most part, I, I think it, it was still very early days in terms of trying to obtain an understanding of, of cryptocurrencies and why they, they pose substantial financial crime risks and what those risks were. Uh, and so the FATF's 2015 guidance didn't really say a great deal. It didn't really provide a very comprehensive framework for applying anti-money laundering regulation to cryptocurrencies. Uh, its main conclusion, really, it's, it's only really significant conclusion at that time, was that uh, countries, if they wanted to take some meaningful steps to regulate the cryptocurrency space, should regulate those platforms that enabled the conversion of cryptocurrencies or virtual currencies for fiat currencies. So really, Bitcoin exchanges or any platform where you could swap your cryptocurrencies for dollars or sterling or yen or, or any other fiat currency. Uh, that was the fattest main recommendation. The, the premise at that time being that uh, criminals, if they obtain cryptocurrencies, at some point they're going to need to cash out. 
So at the time, that was basically the fattest conclusion. Uh, if, if you want to regulate cryptocurrencies and do something meaningful from an AML perspective, uh, go and, and regulate these sort of fiat to crypto on and off ramps. And so the founders just sort of put that that guidance out there in 2015 and, and told regulators around the world, you know, sort of have at it uh, and, and try to undertake those initial basic steps. Um, but in the sort of intervening years after 2015, a, a number of things happened that significantly changed the landscape when it came to cryptocurrencies. And I think substantially changed the perspective of uh, global regulators and bodies like the FATF. Uh, now, one of those developments that occurred in the, in the few years from 2015 was that all sorts of new crypto products and services that didn't exist back in 2015 were suddenly appearing. And, and you have things like initial coin offerings, uh, Bitcoin ATMs, decentralized exchanges, crypto to crypto exchange services, uh, privacy coins, which maybe is a topic we'll come back to, things like Monero, uh, cryptocurrencies that uh, allow a very high level of an anonymity. Um, and so, whereas the original guidance only addressed sort of fiat to crypto exchange services, in the in the few years that followed, there are all sorts of new products and services that no one had really even envisioned in 2015, or were in such an early stage that the FATF hadn't addressed them. Um, the second thing that happened was that the scale of and of crime involving cryptocurrencies and the nature of crime became far more significant and form far more complex. Uh, in the early years of crypto. Uh, it was true that a lot of the early adopters were criminals, but it was mostly confined to things like dark web marketplaces, uh, cyber criminals, ransomware attacks, significant crime, but it was fairly contained to certain types of criminal actors. Now, over the years, as more and more people started using crypto, the overall volumes of illicit activity naturally increased as well. Uh, but the threat landscape, I think, became much more complex. So not only with dark web marketplaces and cyber criminals, they're using cryptocurrencies and that activity are growing greater and greater in scale. But we also began to see things like countries like North Korea looking to cryptocurrencies to evade sanctions and also things like terrorist financing campaigns, uh, even though they've been relatively small in number, uh, seeing uh, organizations like ISIL and others looking to cryptocurrencies to raise funds for terrorism. So you had more and more services appearing, uh, more and more types of crime. And then the other thing that I think occurred, or I, maybe it's more accurate to say it didn't happen, is that very few countries actually followed the FATF's initial recommendation to implement regulation around fiat to crypto exchange businesses. So you, you had a situation where the nature and scale of crime was becoming more severe, but most countries were really doing very little about it. Uh, in addition to the U.S., you did have other countries bringing some regulation in play, Japan, Australia, a few other sort of early movers. Uh, but for the most part, most of the countries were quite slow to bring regulation into place. And many countries still at this stage do not have AML frameworks for cryptocurrencies. So in 2018, the U.S. Uh, assumed the presidency, the rotating presidency of the FATF, and basically said, OK, this isn't working anymore uh, enough. We know that there are more types of crypto products and services appearing all the time, all sorts of interesting innovations in this space. But we also know that the nature and scale of criminality is becoming more severe and more complex. But hardly anyone's doing anything about it. This has to stop. And so in October of 2018, the FATF, guided by the U.S. presidency, uh, issued a call for urgency related to virtual assets uh, in which it said every country needs to get in line 
and start adopting some anti-money laundering regulation around crypto. And basically said, we're going to go back and look at our 2015 guidance and update it and provide a much more comprehensive framework for crypto and virtual assets is their name. Uh, and so that's really kind of what led us to, to where we got uh, in June, which is when the FATF issued what what is really extensive, approximately 60-page guidance that sets out in very, very clear detail uh, what global regulators and global standard setters expect when it comes to regulation of virtual assets and cryptocurrencies, and also what they expect cryptocurrency businesses to be doing to implement those regulatory standards. So you mentioned that at this point, or at least at the, the point prior to this guidance, that there was a lot of countries out there that weren't necessarily regulating crypto. They hadn't implemented the previous recommendations. Uh, so what are the implications of the new guidance for crypto regulation? And then on the, the, the receiving end of that, so to speak, uh, obviously increased regulation or new regulation will have an impact on the businesses in the crypto sector. So as sort of a part two, what are the practical implications for businesses in the crypto space? Sure. Well, I, I think there are a few key outcomes of the recent FATF guidance, the most recent guidance from June. So uh, one of the first and most substantial changes is that the scope of regulation is broadening significantly. So the FATF went back and looked at its early definition of, of uh, virtual currency businesses. And as, as I mentioned previously, initially back in 2015, it only covered fiat, fiat to crypto exchange services. They created, uh, in 2019, a new definition of virtual asset service provider, uh, a VASP, as they're, they're now known, that includes a very broad range of services and platforms that go well beyond just fiat to crypto exchange services. So a VASP can include a platform that facilitates the exchange of one cryptocurrency for another. It can include products like Bitcoin ATMs. It can include ICO issuers who issue new tokens and maybe receive funds in return for the issuance of those tokens. It can include certain types of payment services providers who are involved in facilitating payments or transfers related to cryptocurrencies. Uh, it can also potentially involve uh, more sort of uh, interesting or novel platforms like peer-to-peer -peer exchanges or decentralized platforms if they're taking any sort of custody of uh, cryptocurrencies during the process. It can also involve things like custodial wallet services that uh, take possession of private keys and exercise control over users' uh, funds. So that's the main thing. That's one of the really key outcomes is that you have a much broader universe of service providers who are now covered by regulation, and that closes a very significant gap. And so that means that all those types of uh, products and services that now uh, are available in the crypto ecosystem, uh, those service providers will need to implement the full suite of uh, AML requirements that we tend to expect in other parts of the financial system. So they'll have to do KYC and CDD. They have to do some degree of transaction monitoring. They need to have conducted a risk assessment. They need to have governance and cultural arrangements in place within their firm to ensure that they have a robust defense against uh, financial crime. So we have a much broader universe of of regulated entities uh, who will now be implementing and, and adhering to uh, global AML standards. So the broadening scope is one outcome. 
Um, another component is that uh, one of the things the FATF new guidance says is that all countries must either register or license uh, VASPs in their jurisdiction. So you need to have a clear framework that ensures that any VASP who comes within your jurisdiction uh, either signs up with your regulator or is uh, authorized as part of a licensing scheme. Now, we're already starting to see some divergence in terms of how countries go about doing that. Uh, you have countries like the U.S., at least at the federal level, where to be a regulated VASP, you register as a money service business with FinCEN. Uh, you, it's a fairly simple registration process as far as things go. You're still expected to adhere to relatively stringent standards, but uh, that's sort of an example of a registration scheme. Uh, in other places, including the state of New York, which has a bit license uh, framework, or in countries like Japan, which has set out a very uh, in-depth and rigorous licensing framework, uh, there is a sort of more involved process of having to apply and be approved by regulators prior to operating. And so uh, not only do service providers, VASPs, now have to demonstrate that they can meet a range of AML requirements, but in many cases they're having to go through very significant and stringent and rigorous approval processes before they can even operate. One of the other major consequences of the most recent guidance is that it, um, it provides a real sort of impetus for effectiveness in terms of how VAFs go about implementing regulation and ensuring that they adhere. So uh, the FATF, as part of its uh, rollout of the new guidance, set a June 2020 implementation uh, deadline, uh, not necessarily a hard deadline, but a, a time at which they expect countries to have uh, made significant progress in implementing the new uh, standards and ensuring those are reflected in local regulation. Uh, but as part of the FATF mutual evaluation process, the FATF will be looking to see whether countries have frameworks for crypto regulation that are effective in practice. You can't just put regulation down on paper and hope it works. Uh, they want to see that regulation can be enforced. And so uh, crypto companies, in addition to having potentially meet uh, very stringent requirements before they're even authorized to operate um, are increasingly, I think, going to be under scrutiny to demonstrate that on an ongoing basis, they can do AML very effectively. So we're seeing the scope of regulation broaden. Uh, it's becoming much more demanding in terms of what regulators expect to see crypto businesses doing in terms of their actual AML implementation. It's interesting because that, that same con focus on control effectiveness is now kind of true across the board, both for crypto and I guess, you know, you could call it the more traditional financial sector as well. So what has been the response, if any, so far from regulators? How would you expect regulators, you know, you mentioned the U.S. was perhaps a little bit ahead of the game, uh, but regulators in the U.S., Europe, Asia, are they likely to significantly change the, their posture, for example, becoming more aggressive in enforcement or that type of thing in regards to the crypto space? Yeah, I think we're going. We're already seeing major changes, but I think the question of what regulators might be doing or are doing sort of dependent on, on where they were, whether they had a framework in place already or whether they need a new one. So I guess there are a few kind of sort of patterns or trends that we're already starting to see. So uh, I think one of the first sort of implications for regulators uh, that comes out of the FATF guidance is really that doing nothing is no longer an option. Uh, as I mentioned, there was a period of years where countries, many if not most countries around the world, didn't implement any AML regulation at all with respect to crypto. Uh, the FATF has made clear that's just 
isn't acceptable anymore. So now one thing we're seeing is the, an absolute rush, I would say, for countries who have not, had not done anything to date to get regulation put into place. So quite a few countries in the APAC region, uh, countries like South Korea, uh, Thailand, others that hadn't had comprehensive frameworks in place or hadn't done anything at all are now looking to adopt those uh, very, very quickly. And as I mentioned, within the next year. So one thing we're going to see is, is countries just aren't going to be given a pass anymore for not having regulatory frameworks in place. Um, among those countries that either already had regulation in place or perhaps uh, were well underway in terms of developing regulatory frameworks, uh, we're already seeing that they're having to expand the scope of regulation in response to the FATF's new measures. So, for example, uh, the European Union uh, about a year ago um, had agreed to uh, the pass what's known as the Fifth Money Laundering Directive. It's a uh, sort of basis for harmonized regulation of the crypto space across the European Union. And it required that by January of 2020, all EU member states should have regulated crypto to fiat exchange businesses and custodial wallet providers. Now, as we've already covered, that's reflective of the FATF's original guidance back in 2015, but it doesn't reflect the new definition of a BASP, which covers things like crypto to crypto exchange businesses, ICO issues, and other types of service providers. So what we're already finding is that uh, even before this sort of pre-existing sort of draft regulation comes into place and is implemented, countries across the EU are already starting to have to take steps to expand the scope of their regulation. So in the UK, for example, uh, Brexit notwithstanding, the UK is still an EU member and is committed to implementing the Fifth Money Laundering Directive. The EU, or the UK rather, has announced that not only will it implement the explicit requirements of 5AMLD, but it will already go beyond that when it implements regulation next year to reflect the new definition of a VASP that the FATF has set out. So countries either are, are either accepting that it can't do nothing anymore, or they're already starting to expand the scope of regulation. Now, I guess an, another sort of trend we're seeing is that among some of those countries that have more well-established crypto regulatory frameworks in place, like the US, Japan, Australia to a degree, uh, some others, few others, those countries are starting to take, in some cases, quite significant uh, and, and meaningful enforcement action. So we're starting to see fines being issued against uh, businesses that fail to register appropriately or that fail to implement uh, AML requirements. FinCEN earlier this year, for the first time, issued a fine against an individual peer-to-peer -peer crypto trader who had not registered as a money service business. business. Uh, in places like Japan, we're starting to see regulators revoke licenses, uh, conduct more rigorous on-site visits where they have concerns about potential violations. And Australia earlier this year actually revoked operating permits for two exchanges that were operating in uh, Australia but had failed to have proper AML compliance frameworks in place. So some of those countries, the ones that were, I think, a bit ahead of the curve in terms of initially implementing regulation uh, are now starting to enforce it, in some cases quite aggressively. We have a kind of a unique position in the U.S., I suppose, when it comes to regulation, because as you mentioned there, we've been a little bit ahead of the game. Um, and there have actually been a number of enforcement actions kind of coming out of the United States for, for several years now, but it seems like the rest of the world is certainly kind of catching up to that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the U.S. enforcement actions actually go back a, a few years. Uh, there was a very significant enforcement action uh, against a crypto exchange called BTCE a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It was a sort of Eastern European-based exchange that was taking advantage of the fact that no regulation had existed in Europe. And they were subject to a very, very substantial penalty from FinCEN. And so uh, the U.S. has been quite out in front in that regard. Uh, but we are starting to see more and more countries undertake enforcement action as well. And I, and I have very little doubt that we'll tend to see more and more of it with time. And one key element of the FATF's guidance when it comes to regulatory expectations and generally an area that the guidance focus on is the need for transactional transparency in the crypto space. Um, and especially for those that may not necessarily be familiar with how cryptocurrencies operate or only have a basic level of familiarity, can you just talk a little bit about what this need for transactional transparency would mean for a crypto compliance team, and also where a firm such as yours, you're with a, a, a blockchain forensics firm, uh, might fit into this picture. Sure. So back in its original 2015 guidance, the FATF didn't really have much to say on the question of transaction monitoring. I mean, I think as most listeners will know, cryptocurrencies generally involve some degree of pseudonymity or anonymity for users, where their identities aren't always really apparent. And I think at the, at, back in 2015, the sort of looked at that fact and said, well, you know, in theory, everyone should be doing some transaction monitoring around crypto, but these networks are decentralized and they're sort of either pseudonymous or anonymous. Uh, so it might not really be effective or even you know, really very possible to do meaningful transaction monitoring. And they kind of just left it at that. Uh, it, it, there wasn't much of great substance on the, the topic of transaction monitoring in the early 2015 guidance. But in that time, the past few years, I think it's become more apparent to those of us who, who work in the industry, and especially for those of us places like Elliptic that produce transaction monitoring solutions, that, that the picture is much more complex. Uh, though they're often pseudonymous or anonymous, certain cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin can be uh, very, very traceable. And it is entirely possible to engage in some degree of transaction monitoring and to come to an understanding of the source of wealth and source of funds uh, that a, a a customer of a crypto business might be introducing into that business. So I think with a more developed understanding of what's possible in terms of transaction monitoring, uh, the FATF sort of revisited things in, in this 2019 guidance and, and had quite a bit more to say. So firstly, one of the things the FATF said is, so all VAFs need to be able to monitor customer transactions in virtual assets. It's it's not sufficient to point to the fact that they're pseudonymous or anonymous and use, use that as an excuse not to engage in transaction monitoring. We expect you to be able to have some information and, and know and be able to see what your customers are doing and, and have some idea about the purpose and nature of their activity. So that's the first requirement is, is there's an expectation now that VAST monitor customer transactions. Then they say that if you're doing business at scale, then you need to really have an automated solution. So, uh, you know, it's not enough and, and this stuff's complicated enough. You probably can't do it manually. You, you need to have some sort of automated solution that enables you to do that. Thirdly, they say that transaction monitoring solutions need to be risk-based and that your transaction monitoring program needs to be risk-based. So you need to have parameters of monitoring that are calibrated to your risk profile. Uh, and then lastly, one of the things they say that's of real significance is to account for the 
pseudonymity of certain crypto assets, the fact that you might not always know who's behind certain transfers, uh, you need to be able to go deeper. You need to really be able to look beyond the immediate transaction with your customer and look, in essence, further back in the chain. And that's essentially what products like we produce at Elliptic do. They're tools that enable crypto companies and other businesses that handle cryptocurrencies to be able to monitor transactions, to extract information and data from public blockchains that provides information about the, fo- the flow of funds after a VASP handle- handles those funds and allows the VASP to make informed decisions about the level of risk associated with customer activity. So um, this is, it, it's really sort of important, I think, step the FATF took, and that it's the first time the global standard, standard setter has said, we expect VASP to be able to monitor activity in cryptocurrencies. We expect you to have some sort of automated so- solution and you need to make sure that solution works for you and is risk-based. And, and that's actually something we're starting to see more and more regulators at the ro- local level say as well. Uh, and it's May 2019 guidance Fins- on cryptocurrencies or convertible virtual currencies, as FinCEN calls them. FinCEN mentioned that blockchain monitoring solutions are, are a, a means of complying with your U.S. AML regulations. We've also seen regulators in places like Hong Kong and Abu Dhabi set out very clear expectations that they expect VASPs there to have blockchain monitoring solutions in place. So it's it's really been elevated to a, a very clear standard now. Exciting time to be in the blockchain monitoring uh, monitoring world. And one of the one of the key elements of this transparency and this need for monitoring and understanding who's conducting transactions is the travel rule. And in the FATF guidance, there's now a indication that this should be a global requirement for crypto businesses. So can you talk a little bit, for those that aren't familiar with it, about uh, what the travel rule is and why it's given such importance in this guidance? So the travel rule is actually a long-standing requirement that has been applied to and implemented by the broader financial industry, banks, and other mainstream financial institutions. And it's, it, it, you know, it's essentially a requirement that aims to ensure that there's end-to-end transparency in payments and especially in cross-border payments. So the, the travel rule requirements, the, the travel rule is the name, it's given in the U.S., it, but uh, the, the standard is essentially implemented at a global level via the FATF and has been for some time. That says if one financial institution is sending funds to another financial institution, it needs to provide that recipient financial institution with complete information about the identity of the sender and the identity of the recipient. So if I'm sending funds from my bank here in the UK uh, to you, Brian, at a bank in the in the US, uh, my bank in the UK needs to tell you who I am. Uh, they need to tell you what they know about who I'm intending to send the funds to, so who you are. And that information needs to travel or be, be shared amongst financial institutions at the, the time the payment is executed. And uh, financial institutions in, in the mainstream financial sector, uh, they use mechanisms like SWIFT uh, to transmit that information when they're conducting transactions. Uh, and they use those messaging services to provide one another with information about uh, beneficiaries and originators of payments. And so that information is, is there and kept on record and accessible to law enforcement as funds move uh, from one financial institution and across borders. So in... In its June 2019 guidance, the FATF says, okay, 
the standard, the, the travel rule, as it's called, is going to be a requirement, a global requirement for all VASPs. So a VASP, say, cryptocurrency exchange like Coinbase, if I'm sending funds from my wallet at Coinbase to uh, Brian, your wallet at Binance, another exchange, uh, Coinbase would have to send Binance my identity, identifying information, information about my cryptocurrency wallet address, and record information about you as well, and that that information needs to be transmitted at the time the payments payments executed. So, you know, the, the mainstream financial institutions, are doing, uh, institutions have been doing this for some time. So, you know, lots of people hearing this might be, think, simple, right? Well, wh why, why can't a cryptocurrency business just do that in the same way? Uh, well, it turns out it's, it's much more complicated than, than just sort of taking the, uh, the, the mainstream financial industry approach and applying it to the crypto world. Uh, there are a few technical and practical challenges that crypto presents that when it comes to successful implementation of the travel rule. So one of the big problems that crypto businesses encounter, VASPs encounter, is how do they actually even identify that they're transacting with another VASP. So uh, in, as we already discussed, uh, cryptocurrencies are pseudonymous, and you, you'll have uh, alphanumeric addresses that uh, are associated with a particular entity, but it's also of, oftentimes not apparent which address is associated with which entity. So VASP basically fixed the problem in terms of trying to identify whom they're transacting with. Uh, now, solutions like we provided Elliptic go quite a long way to identifying uh, who sits behind virtual currency addresses. But in order to be fully compliant with the travel rule, you'd have to have really sort of a foolproof mechanism for ensuring that VASPs can always identify when they're sending funds to another regulated entity. Another question or sort of problem that comes up is how do you actually go about transmitting information from one VASP to another? So how do you transfer all that customer data? Now, as I mentioned, in the mainstream financial sector, you have uh, infrastructure like SWIFT that can be used to for banks to communicate and share that customer data at the time transactions are executed. But with decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, it's not possible to attach uh, information to the, uh, to the actual payment at the time it's executed. So you need some other sort of infrastructure that can facilitate the transfer of data along with the actual transfer of funds. Um, and that does not exist, at least not yet. Uh, and then another question that comes up when it comes to the travel rule is, and, and I think one question that industry had when the FATF initially proposed this concept of applying this to the crypto space is, uh, is it likely to be an effective measure given that in the crypto world, uh, electronic payments can be made without no financial institu institution involved? Now, in the mainstream financial sector, in the fiat currency world, you and I can send funds to one another, but we have to electronically, but we have to do that using some sort of intermediary. We have to go through our banks or a money service business or someone else. In the crypto world, uh, you do not need a third party to affect transactions. So you and I can have transactions with one another peer to peer where there's no regulated institution involved and where the travel rule consequently can't actually be applied because there's no regulated institution to send information from one to another. So there are a number of technical and practical challenges when it comes to uh, the travel rule and, and, and some debate about its potential effectiveness in the crypto space. But uh, nevertheless, 
there's a public consultation actually in in May of this year where the FATF gathered members of the private sector, we from Elliptic, a number of our customers and partners from the industry were there to talk to uh, regulators and the secretariat about how and, and whether to adopt this standard. And the industry did raise quite a number of these challenges and concerns. But uh, at the end of the day, the FATF decided it would adopt the travel rule as a global standard for the crypto industry and sort of set industry the task of trying to find a solution. Um, so now I think it goes without saying there is not a solution that does this yet. Uh, it's actually the travel rule has actually been a requirement of crypto businesses in the U.S. going back to when FinCEN issued its original guidance in 2013. Uh, but there's been no sort of solution to enable compliance with that standard. But now that the FATF has adopted it as a global standard and wants to see it implemented universally, uh, there's a tremendous amount of work going on in the crypto industry to really trying to solve two problems. So one is finding a technical solution. So how do you actually enable VATs to identify one another and then to transmit data to one another uh, in a way that works and that works for all virtual assets and all cryptocurrencies that they might send to one another? Uh, that's a question that we're very focused on in Elliptic at a moment. We're at the moment, we're doing quite a bit of work to understand requirements for solutions and to identify potential solutions and working with uh, customers and industry partners to uh, understand what, what might be possible in terms of technical solutions. The other problem the industry is trying to solve is government, governance arrangements that can help to enable the industry as a whole to comply with this universally. So there is no SWIFT at the moment uh, in uh, in the cryptocurrency world, there are a number of uh, very effective and very meaningful uh, industry associations. But how do you get to a place where everybody agrees on what this should look like and is operating by the same standard is a, is a big question the crypto industry is asking right now. And uh, at Elliptic, we're, we're very engaged on sort of both those tracks, both in terms of trying to understand and identify technical solutions that we believe can work, and also working with our industry partners to start to define some standards and governance arrangements uh, that, that might help to enable the industry to comply as a whole. So it's still very early days, I think, in terms of travel rule compliance for the industry. Um, but it is something that it, the, the crypto industry is taking very, very seriously and is working to uh, identify solutions to. So you've, you've talked about, obviously, the response to the tra travel rule. What about more broadly? Uh, how has the crypto industry responded to these developments so far? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the the industry's response to to the FATF's guidance has been quite welcoming and quite positive, uh, primarily because it, it creates clarity. Um, you know, a lot of the questions about who should be regulated and how are questions that the crypto industry has been asking and seeking clarity from regulators to for, for quite some time during that sort of four-year gap in 2015 to 2019. Um, so I think when it, when it comes to sort of the basic requirements, the uh, some of the broadening of scope of regulation and you know, the, the idea that more crypto businesses need to be able to comply with some basic L AML provisions. Uh, I think it's, it's generally positive on the whole. Well, you know, there still will continue to be divergence from country to country in terms of sort of this, the nature of day-to-day -day implementation of regulation. It is a step towards greater harmonization. And I think crypto businesses that operate globally uh, like to see that there is a move towards a more harmonized international framework than at least that it existed before. It creates more of a level playing field for everyone in the industry to have things a little more aligned. 
Um, so generally speaking, I think it's quite welcoming. And I, and I think, you know, even though the travel rule is, is recognized as a significant challenge, you know, I, I don't think the, the industry is, is opposed to what it's trying to accomplish. So while you know, it's a fairly contentious issue and a, and a technically challenging one, I think in general, the, the industry is welcoming of the fact that uh, the fact of really kind of taken charge of things in terms of trying to create clarity around what's expected. You've mentioned this in in previous points that you've made, but just to kind of distill it down um, to three takeaways for crypto businesses, what are the three key steps among the many things they probably have to do that crypto businesses that any crypto business sh- business should be taking in response uh, to the FATF's guidance? Yeah, sure. So I think the first one is any crypto business really needs to understand the full scope of their obligation. Firstly, they need to figure out, are they a VAS? Is their business model now part of this new expansive definition uh, of regulated crypto businesses? And, and are they abiding by the rules? If they're a company that operates in multiple jurisdictions, then they need to be very clear on what the local requirements are, whether it comes to registration or licensing, uh, and make sure those that they adhere to those. So really being clear on where they are, the extent and nature of all their obligations, wherever they may operate, is the first key step. Then I think the second step is a crypto business really needs to start by having an understanding of its risks. So they need to conduct a risk assessment uh, of their business. So look at all the sort of places where their business might be exposed to money laundering and terrorist financing or sanctions risks. Uh, And the FATF guidance actually spends quite a bit of time providing instructions or ideas for how one might go about assessing that risk and what types of factors they should be thinking about. I think any crypto business should should spend quite a bit of time uh, really working to understand what the FATF has to say when it comes to implementing a a risk assessment that's effective. Uh, Because you can't do AML well if you don't have an understanding of your risks, and your program needs to be risk-based. And if you're a crypto company, the way you think about your risk may be different from the way a traditional financial institution does that. It may be a matter of um, needing to understand the risks associated with specific types of products and services you offer or specific types of cryptocurrencies you enable trading in. Um, So you really need to do deep dive risk assessment that you can build your AML program around. Uh, and then I think the third thing, which we already touched upon and is now an expectation of the FATF, is you really need to have some sort of transaction and activity monitoring solution in place or blockchain monitoring solution. Um, not only do you need to do that to sort of meet that basic requirement, but I think it's very, very difficult, practically speaking, for a, a crypto business to really meet all of its other obligations unless it, it has some idea of what its customers doing and it has a view of customer activities and the associated risks. You can't really do a risk assessment if you don't know where your customers are sending funds to or from. And you can't do things like file SARS effectively um, so or, or liaise with law enforcement in, the, in an effective way. So I think, you know, understanding what your requirements are, understanding your risks, and making, you have an, making sure you have an, a monitoring solution in place that allows you to have a view of those risks are really kind of three critical pillars. Makes sense. Kind of get the fundamentals in place uh, before you, 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 we can address some of these bigger challenges like the travel rule. Um, the, FATF, the FATF also doesn't limit the guidance to just the crypto space. There is some implications for banks and other mainstream financial institutions. So could you just touch on that in this, this last question and uh, give us some guidance on, on how financial institutions, banks particularly, might respond? Sure. So I think to date, banks and and other mainstream financial institutions have really, for the most part, looked to de-risking as their primary strategy for 
dealing with the crypto space. So the overall aim has really been, for the most part, for most large financial institutions to avoid any and all exposure to cryptocurrency risks. So many financial institutions refuse to bank cryptocurrency exchanges or offer them corporate accounts. You know, we've also seen instances of major financial institutions closing accounts of retail customers who use cryptocurrencies or say use their debit card to purchase cryptocurrencies. Uh, there are exceptions to that rule. Some of the most exciting, I think, developments in the cryptocurrency space at the moment are institutional players getting into the crypto space, seeing things like Fidelity launching a digital assets service, you know, certain other banks starting to kind of dip their toe into this space. But but for the most part, I think the, the primary aim of most major financial institutions today has been to say, you know, we just want to avoid exposure, so we're not going to touch this space. What the FATF has said in its 2019 guidance is really that de-risking just isn't an option. Uh, you can't just wholesale try to avoid risks with a sector anymore. You need to have a more thoughtful sort of risk-based approach. And the FATF says very, very explicitly, we don't endorse de-risking and just the wholesale cutting off of the crypto sector by the mainstream financial sector. So if you're a bank or mainstream financial institution, you need to have a risk-based approach in place that enables you to identify risks associated with cryptocurrencies that you may be exposed to and assess how you might go about mitigating or managing those. And I think in general, one of the major developments we've seen at Elliptic over the past year, 18 months, is the beginnings of a real change in terms of how financial institutions, mainstream financial institutions, are starting to think about crypto. I think many are starting to realize that there are potential opportunities in the space, whether it comes to things like offering their own tokens. I mean, you had my colleague Tom Robinson on recently talking about the Libra cryptocurrency that Facebook has said it's going to launch. Uh, we, we see you know, other major corporations starting to explore similar ideas. Uh, but even if they're not looking to actually get directly involved in the crypto space, I think many banks and mainstream financial institutions are realizing that it's just not possible to totally avoid the crypto space anymore. It's just too big. There's too much of it around. It's too pervasive. Uh, it's almost unquestionable that you will have customers who have maybe their source of wealth is cryptocurrencies. Maybe they're acting as an unlicensed cryptocurrency broker, and you're not aware of your exposure there. So you might have indirect exposure that you need to be able to assess and, and manage. So I think there's a growing acceptance among the mainstream financial sector that they can't run away from this anymore. And I think the FATF really underscores that running away from crypto or just attempting to de-risk isn't, isn't a viable strategy anymore. You need to be able to identify and manage the risks that exist. So uh, in practical terms, a bank needs to have a clearly defined risk-based approach for how they go about, um, firstly, identifying what their exposure is. Do you have it? What does it look like? Is it direct or in indirect? Uh, what is the nature of that risk? Are you exposed to money laundering risks, sanctions risks, other types of risks, potentially fraud? Um, and do you have any solutions to address it? Do you have access to the data you need to be able to assess and manage that risk? Or do you have access to things like uh, blockchain monitoring tools or forensics capabilities that can be used to used to conduct due diligence if you're a major financial institution, even where you maybe have indirect exposure to the crypto space. Uh, and this is something that's, that's an increasing focus of ours at Elliptic. Uh, we, we are working with more and more financial institutions to help them assess and identify their risk exposure and to find solutions to addressing it, whether it's the use of certain pre-existing tools we've, we've used or, or make available but also to find uh, new and innovative ways to sort of tackle some of those challenges that are specific to the issues that, that banks and other mainstream financial institutions may face. 
Well, it's an exciting time to be alive and an exciting time in particular to be in the crypto space. And it sounds like, you know, fortunately, the response and the reception to the guidance overall has been pretty positive across the various sectors it impacts, both regulatory, crypto, and even the traditional financial sector. This is a uh, an encouraging development for both innovation and security when it comes to both crypto and, you know, mainstream, more mainstream financial institutions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think while there are challenges out there, like the travel rules are the big challenges that the industry needs to tackle as a whole, you know, I think, especially over the medium to long term, uh, the direction of uh, of things is, is really primarily very positive in the sense that uh, having a clear framework for operating, a clear framework for regulation, I think ultimately will s- facilitate uh, more confidence and trust in this new technology that will enable more effective, and more interesting innovation over time. Yeah, so it's good to see what it'll be good to see what comes next. Uh, and we will absolutely be here as well, Elliptic, uh, along for the ride. So, uh, David, thank you very much for joining us for this session. And I'm sure we will uh, we'll be talking again in the future. So appreciate the time and expertise. Yeah, no, thanks very much for having me.